You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. This week, we're going to hear from Justin Norton, a partner at GSR Ventures. Well, he has things to say about generative AI in healthcare and life sciences. Later in this episode, he's going to talk with Fierce's Heather Landy about why the tech will be game-changing for healthcare. And also today, I'm going to check in with my colleague, Anastasia Gladkovskia, about access to care for the LGBTQ community. A while back, Anastasia talked with Jerrica Kirkley, the founder of Plume, about trans rights and preserving access to care. Well, something in the news recently caught Anastasia's eye, and we wanted to bring back that conversation with Kirkley. So we'll check in with Anastasia later. But first, let's talk about generative AI. Okay, so generative AI, what is it? Generative AI describes algorithms like DAL-E or ChatGPT and BARD. And what these do is they enable users to quickly create new content based on a variety of inputs. So in healthcare, it can do things like text classification, translation. It can also summarize things, and it could answer questions. The healthcare world is coming up to speed on the implications of generative AI. At the recent HIMSS and Vive healthcare conferences, generative AI was the big topic. Health IT companies are integrating generative AI into their software. Take Epic's work with Microsoft. It's embedding large language model tools into its electronic health record, which is used by millions of doctors across the country. Things are moving fast. It's only been five months since OpenAI released its generative language learning model, ChatGPT, and then followed by GPT-4 in March. Now, tech giants and startups aren't holding back. They're moving quickly to test out the potential for these tools in medicine, clinical settings, and research. And this is interesting. It got very exciting when Google's model achieved 85% accuracy on a U.S. medical licensing examination practice test. They said it was the highest score ever recorded by an AI model. So that begs the question, will AI soon be diagnosing patients? What are the ethical implications of this? Our guest today is Justin Norden, a partner at GSR Ventures, a medical doctor by training, He also teaches a medical school course focused exclusively on generative AI and medicine. Well, he sat down with Heather Landy to talk about how AI will be a part of the future of medical care. Here they are. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to chat with you about how healthcare is taking a big leap forward with generative AI. Heather, thanks so much for having me. Really excited. So the use of AI in healthcare isn't new, but the industry is taking a giant leap forward with generative AI. At a basic level, what exactly is generative AI and and ChatGPT, and how is this different from what we've seen before? Absolutely. In terms of what is generative AI, I like to think about it as AI algorithms that are fundamentally starting to produce things. Those things can be arts, those things can be words, those things can be images, uh, among, among, among many other mediums that we're starting to see now. And it's been really exciting starting to see these things applied to healthcare. ChatGPT, which you asked, is kind of one of those applications which really took the world by storm, being the fastest growing consumer application ever, getting to 100 million users in the span of a couple months, and was this uh, ability to take a language model 
and put a chat interface over that that allowed people to produce new content, chat away, um, and even in some cases, you know, offer unsolicited medical advice. Uh, although we can get into that later, which you know technically certainly is not FDA approved. Right, right. When I was chatting with you at the Vive conference back in March, you said generative AI was the most transformative technological shift in decades. And I do want to dig into um, what you see as some, some of the most promising use cases and also some of the ethical issues. But first, let's kind of talk about what's on most people's minds. You know, is AI going to be diagnosing us? Are we going to be going to see Dr. AI instead of our local doctor when we have a health problem? Yes, so this is certainly top of mind. And I think the other one is, you know, is AI going to be replacing clinicians and physicians anytime soon? And to both of those answers, I would say no. Um, we aren't going to be making any kind of FDA approved diagnoses through AI or through these types of AI systems anytime soon. Now, we do have a number of AI systems that over the past few years, especially in radiology, have actually gotten to the point where they can kind of make diagnoses or in certain cases, certain claims. We've seen this a little bit in retinal imaging for diabetes, um, but we are nowhere near getting to the point where we're going to have a chatbot starting to make these diagnoses. Um, despite the fact that there have been, in the past few weeks, a number of websites launched. I won't name them. I don't need to give them any more attention than they already have, but a number of websites have launched more or less trying to offer this service. Now, you'll see on GPT-4, the chat GPT version from OpenAI, and things like BARD, which is launched by Google, they are starting to delve into this realm of if you ask medical questions, they will give you this big disclaimer saying this is not medical advice, this should not be used for medical advice, please go consult a clinician, and yet they'll give you this detailed answer. So from a performance basis, can these systems offer medical diagnoses? I mean, they are today. Are they going to be regulated in a way? Do we even know how to regulate them? Hmm. Not really. Um, would be where those conversations are at. So we're not going to have true medical diagnosis in any kind of FDA-approved way anytime soon. And because of that, we're really not going to be replacing any clinicians anytime soon. Okay. So, you know, why should we as patients be excited about doctors and clinicians using something like ChatGPT? So many reasons. So I think one reason we should be excited as, as patients um, about everyone really using these tools is these tools can provide a background of information. I think for patients around education, around explaining complicated medical concepts, these tools can be amazing at delivering kind of that material in a way that feels comfortable, uh, isn't filled with medical jargon that sometimes clinicians like to use in a quick answer because they don't have enough time. And so can kind of create the time and space where you know patients can learn more about their conditions, get a general baseline level of knowledge, and learn a little bit about that. And it's far better than the previous tools we had, like Google or, or MedPage or you know different kind of WebMD searches that you know gave some information but not to the level of detail. And so I think patient education is one of the things that people should be really really excited about. In terms of why they should be excited that their clinicians are using these devices is it's really going to help them kind of with a lot of the administrative burden and non-clinical tasks that really burden our workforce today and have caused, you know, a record high provider burnout. Um, so this is really one thing that, uh, you know, patients are feeling and that, hey, I don't have a bunch of time with my doctor. You know, I'm not getting the kind of empathetic support that maybe I was used to getting. And as you know, providers are using these tools, they're going to be able to save 
a huge amount of time to then spend hopefully more of that time with their patient. So that's kind of one of the reasons that they should be excited about these tools. Uh, another is these tools can be running in the background to maybe aid at, uh, in some near future with diagnostic support, with bringing up relevant information, with crafting better responses, and hopefully kind of really kind of reinforcing some of that clinician-patient relationship. Okay, right. Yeah, great. Um, but then on the flip side, what should we be worried about as patients? You know, how do we as patients protect ourselves as companies are moving pretty quickly to deploy this technology? Yeah, the, the pace of adoption really is astounding. And even when healthcare, you know, is notoriously usually very, very slow, if not last to deploy these new tools, we've seen over the past few months an incredible amount of announcements and excitement about the use of these tools in healthcare. So for example, you know, one of them that, you know, created a lot of buzz recently was, a, you know, an epic Microsoft, you know, open AI announcement to work with these new tools on patient messaging. Um, and so I think some patients, you know, maybe are alarmed that, you know, in a very near distant future, at least in the pilot stage, we may see, you know, AI drafting initial responses to patient messages. Um, and we may see that, you know, clinicians will still be in charge for the near future in terms of whether to send them or not. But those initial drafts may be written by AI. And in some cases, those may be better. And in some cases, those may be worse. Um, and so I think there's, you know, some natural inclination to, to, to fear that. Um, we're going to start to see um, these tools deployed, you know, today in notes. Notes is kind of one of this, you know, huge burdens that clinicians have faced over the past few years and complained endlessly about note-taking burden through the EMR. But we're going to see notes as an example where, you know, conversations are going to be recorded, conversations are going to be transcribed, and notes are going to be automatically generated that a physician or clinician will still be able to edit and change, but, you know, it will be different than, than what it looked like before. And I think, you know, some patients are potentially afraid of that, potentially afraid of having their conversations recorded. Um, my hope is that these tools will, you know, improve the relationship, make those notes better and more actionable um, than they were before. Um, but we really haven't tested these yet to a point where the whole field can agree that this is better. This is exactly what we know what we're doing. Uh, today, it's a little bit of the wild west. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. There was just a, a very recent study that found that chat um, chatbots or chat G GPT actually had a bed, better bedside manner than doctors. Um, you know, it was, it was more empathetic and I think gave better better answers to questions. So that's it's really interesting. Absolutely. I think this this study, you know, I think everyone was quite excited to, to see the headlines. And I think it was, you know, quality of answers were rated as higher by chatbot answers versus uh, clinician answers, um, as well as, you know, empathy scores were rated as higher in chatbot answers compared to clinician answers. Um, I think it's actually worth discussing this, you know, in terms of a little bit more detail too. Uh, you know, those answers weren't necessarily created equal. And so if you actually look at the responses, the length of the chatbot answers were more than twice as long as kind of the average clinician answer. Um, and if you looked at the clinician answers, as their answers got longer, their actually quality and empathy scores tended to go up as well. Um, and so, you know, could physicians, you know, if they spent longer on these messages, could they have created messages that were as of high quality and as high empathy? You know, I think so. I think, I think they could have. Will they? Will they kind of do this over over the future when they're already pressed for time? You know, no, they, they won't. 
Um, and so, I, you know, I read this study as, you know, it does really showcase this amazing example of where these chatbots are at today and the potential we all see in healthcare. Does it mean, you know, physicians are obsolete? No, it doesn't. But it really, really could augment their time and really help out in a way that hopefully is really meaningful and useful to the patients as well. Right. But there's also a lot of thorny ethical issues with this technology. Um, companies are deploying this tech very quickly. As ChatGPT only came onto the scene back in November, um, as you have you mentioned, the kind of the astounding pace of of adoption. Um, there's also a lack of regulation and oversight. How should health systems, hospitals, payers, and tech companies approach using this technology? Just to give you a perspective of what I'm worried about on on a few of these topics, it's one we need to get better transparency into what data is going into training these models and 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 their performance well, from the data side you know some of the open source models we're starting to see hey we have understanding of what data this was trained for and, and what it's not so we can start to kind of think through kind of the ethical and kind of equity issues making sure we have you know different patient perspectives so we're not leaving a certain uh, a certain group out um, and then on the actual testing and deployment, I think this is another really interesting part. So how as health systems, payers, technology companies, et cetera, can we choose less crucial problems first, start to assess where that performance is, make sure there aren't any glaring issues, especially as you get closer and closer to clinical care. And after we do that, we get comfortable with that. We can start marching to kind of more higher risk situations. Um, and so what does that mean? I think it means we're probably going to start on, again, things like notes. You know, it's going to start on a lot of other administrative tasks. Can we do with medical coding and billing? Um, can we start with these tasks where AI might be able to help? And we're all as a field going to get better at understanding the edge cases and limitations. After that, we should start to kind of approach uh, the more clinical problems with, with caution and, and not just jump all the way into the deep end just yet. Right. Yeah. Great points. One of the challenges with generative AI, as I understand it, is it's often often referred to as hallucinations. What are AI hallucinations and how is this problematic for using the tech in healthcare? Yeah. So one of the things about these systems is they're designed right to predict based on what came before, I'll predict what comes next. And so they aren't perfect representations. They make up new facts uh, they say things that you know just aren't true, and obviously the potential risk of that in healthcare is is massive. Uh, another term uh, people in healthcare like to use when describing these systems is confabulation, meaning it's not trying to lie to you, it's not trying to make something up, but it's kind of just stringing together kind of the different words and sentences in order that makes sense. And so this is a really big issue when we're thinking about deploying these systems, and so. This is why we have to be very thoughtful of which problems we you know, tackle first. Um, I think the other thing to realize and try to deal with these hallucinations is it's not that we use a large language model once and it solves everything. These language models might be one piece of a deployment, but we can put a lot of other guardrails built around them. So there's lots of other techniques where we can say, hey, you know, the, the, the language model made kind of this output, but let's make sure a clinician maybe is reviewing the output or the results before publishing it in kind of any other way. Right, right. Okay. And speaking of guardrails, um, one thing that I've heard from, you know, chief information security officers, um, 
people who are, you know, working in data, um, data security and privacy is that the idea of generative AI is kind of giving them heart palpitations. <laughs> they are really concerned about, you know, clinicians just going wild with this technology. Um, how should healthcare organizations be thinking through like the privacy and data security challenges? Yeah, this is absolutely an evolving issue and I've heard similar stories. Um, however, as we move forward, there really are ways where people are going to be able to use these tools where we can do all those things and share data in a compliant way. Um, and, you know, uh, Azure AI from, from Microsoft, you know, they've had cloud solutions and healthcare HIPAA compliant servers for, for ages. And now you can do, you know, GPT-4 calls through that service. Um, so right now, you know, on the wards, again, it's the Wild West, people from medical students, residents, et cetera. And so even some hospitals have blocked access to like the website, ChatGPT. So, so it can not leak out information from a data security and privacy perspective. Um, but interestingly, I would say, you know, even today, there are ways to use these tools in a privacy uh, and in a privacy preserving way and a secure way. Um, and so that's actually not the number one concern for me in how these tools get deployed, even though it has been, I think, really top of mind for a lot of administrators. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and so right now you're teaching a course um, about generative AI and medicine at Stanford. Um, as I understand it. It's one of the few, if, if maybe maybe the only course really focused on on this technology in healthcare. Um, so how is that going? What Are you seeing a lot of, a lot of interest from students in this topic? <laughs> yes, it, it, it is going great and has just been a total blast. Um, it is a fascinating time. I've, I've never taught or even seen a course where at the end of each week, uh, I go over what happened this past week in the world of generative AI medicine. Mm -hmm. And each week there are really huge shifts and changes and papers and partnerships and things getting announced. Um, and it's been really exciting to discuss that, see this unfold in real time, um, which again, I, I personally have never experienced in, in medicine or technology um, as a field has been moving this fast. Um, and so I think it's been really exciting. And I think that's why students are interested. Right. And there are some people who are kind of dismissing this as yet another technology that's being overhyped. So do you think that gener generative AI is being overhyped? <laughs> <laughs> Overhyped is a tough question, uh, yeah. <laughs> as there's certainly a, a, a lot of, of hype now. Yeah. Um, I do think some of the hype is deserved. So uh, again, it's always sometimes it's useful to, to make a comparison, you know, uh, to, to pick on something like, you know, blockchain or, or, or Web3 in healthcare. I would argue, and I think most would agree now, that those use cases were overhyped and they kind of weren't able to deliver those use cases and value. They were kind of more amorphous or maybe coming someday in the future. Do I think that technology is useless? Absolutely not. Um, but maybe some of those main use cases are coming down the line. In contrast, when we look within healthcare and these large language models, we're seeing use cases getting built in days that really could be helpful. Again, notes, coding, billing, revenue cycle, all of these tasks that it's helpful today. Um, and so the question is, how does it get integrated? How do we make sure it's done safely? How do we, you know, what are the business models that are going to allow these companies to perform as they grow? Those are the questions in my mind, not can the technology solve problems? And so overhyped is, is too tough a question, but there, there is real reason to, to spend time on this space because that we're already seeing the uses and productivity improvements, again, not just in healthcare, but across so many fields. 
Okay. Well, Justin, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. It's been really interesting to learn more about generative AI and to kind of, to really hear your perspective on this, on this kind of evolving technology. Heather, thanks so much for having me. This has been a ton of fun. Next week, two of Fierce's very own, Anastasia Gledkovskia and Paige Minnemeyer, will be in Philadelphia, moderating a panel at the Reuters event called Value-Based Health USA 2023. The event explores how the various potential value-based business models work, including their associated incentives, risks, and potential financial impacts. So find out more at RuitersEvents.com, and I'll put that link in our show notes. Anastasia, you've been reporting on attacks on gender-affirming care for a while now, and you came to me the other week and you said, hey, this is still happening. We should do a recap episode about it. So after you and I catch up on this, I'm going to replay the segment where you chatted with Jerrica Kirkley, co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume Health. But before we get into that, remind me again, what was the piece of news that prompted you to want to bring this topic back to Podnosis? Yeah. So about a week ago, um, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida approved a ban that criminalizes providing transgender care to minors. So that includes puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and sex reassignment surgeries. And it's important to note that the bill not only blocks what most providers would say is life-saving care for minors, but it also includes stipulations that make it more difficult for adults to access this care. So DeSantis said, and I'm quoting, this will permanently outlaw the mutilation of minors. Uh, He goes on to say that you know, providers are doing sex change operations on minors and giving them puberty blockers and that these things are irreversible. And I just want to point out that that's not true. Surgery for minors, first of all, is really rare and it requires extensive monitoring um, by multiple medical professionals. Um, Puberty blockers are temporary They are a way to give minors time to consider their options, and there aren't known permanent side effects. They're considered safe, and you can just stop taking them. So Mm -hmm. DeSantis was very um, misleading and inaccurate when it comes to this care. Um, And the bill gives courts authority to remove kids from their homes if they are found to be getting gender-affirming treatments. For adults, the state now requires trans adults to get written permission in person with an MD on a form that's approved by two oversight boards that are basically full of members that are appointed by DeSantis, and they've already indicated that they want to restrict access to this care. So it's just another hurdle and another barrier for these people who are just trying to access the care that they need. This bill is currently being challenged in court. A group of parents have requested a judge to temporarily block this. Um, But at least 14 other states have also banned treatments for trans youth, um, though they may also face challenges in courts. Um, And it really runs the gamut. I mean, some states, including Florida, have bathroom bills blocking the use of, you know, public facilities that are consistent with your gender identity. 
So this is not the first and likely won't be the last attack that we see on this type of care. More than 500 bills affecting the LGBTQ community have been proposed around the U.S. and 48 have been enacted. That's according to the Human Rights Campaign. Um, And this is just really harmful, especially when you consider that studies have found if you receive gender affirming care, then you have a 60 percent lower chance of depression and 73 percent lower chance of suicidality within a year of that treatment. Wow. Those are pretty significant numbers. Given all the constraints you just listed, what can be done in Florida to help ensure access to care? So um, providers and parents are going to need to get creative, but we're already seeing some providers, um, you know, find interesting workarounds. Unless you're a provider that's serving minors, which in that case, your hands might be tied, um, you can, for example, um, bring in additional physicians to um, to practice in the state to help your patients get those in-person consent forms signed as part of the new law if you're an adult so for instance plume it's a virtual a plume health is a virtual trans care provider that serves adults um, and so they are bringing in additional physicians and partnering with uh, local providers on the ground um, to make sure that they have in-person staff to help sign those forms and continue to facilitate treatment. You mentioned Plume. We're going to hear more from Jerrica Kirkley, the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume Health. But in a separate piece of news, uh, the public health emergency expired on May 11th. Does that have any implications for gender-affirming care? Yeah, it definitely does, especially for virtual providers. So the public health emergency had included provisions that granted special telehealth flexibilities for virtual providers, and that included the ability to prescribe controlled substances virtually. The Drug Enforcement Administration proposed new rules back in February, um, kind of for a post-PHE world, and um, those proposed rules drew major backlash and actually a record 38,000 public comments because they would have ended those flexibilities, and so many people have come to depend on those and you know, just to be able to see a provider virtually, not have to go in person to get a prescribe to get a prescription for a controlled substance such as Adderall or an opioid or what have you. So ultimately, just a few days before the PHE expired, the DEA reconsidered after all of this feedback and announced that it would extend these telehealth flexibilities for another six months. So for now, As long as you are able to get in with a virtual provider by November 11th of this year, you will be able to get your controlled medications prescribed virtually for one more year after that. Um, Mm -hmm. After that, as of now, the flexibilities are most likely going to expire. So you will need to meet with a physician in person once um, before you're able to continue getting that prescription. Um, another virtual provider for the LGBTQ community, Folks Health, they've been building out a referral network of partners for a while now um, in anticipation of something like this so that their patients who are typically seeing their staff virtually can have in-person visits um, when needed because they don't have their own in, uh, brick and mortar site. So, for example, Planned Parenthood is someone in their referral network that um, their patients can go to see. So. 
on the surface, it might not seem like a big deal, but this is really important for people who are in um, care deserts and who have barriers like transportation issues um, to be able to find a provider, not to mention a provider who is culturally competent and, um, you know, is not going to make you feel stigmatized for for getting mm-hmm. that care because a lot of people have come to depend on these culturally appropriate, um, you know, gender affirming, whatever it is, uh, virtual providers. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how this ties in with what we're talking about now is testosterone is one of the main drugs that's used in hormone therapy and gender affirming care, and it's a controlled substance. So um, the temporary flexibilities through November is a win for virtual providers who are serving this population, but um, it's just temporary. And so time will tell how this plays out. Um, Besides testosterone, of course, there are behavioral health medications, opioids, basically any controlled substance that um, a patient might need to be prescribed. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's important to watch how the end of the PHE and these flexibilities will turn out. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens next. Thank you, Anastasia, for looking into this. I'm going to replay that segment from January of this year where you spoke to Jerica Kirkley, the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume. And Kirkley is a trans woman herself. You two spoke about how she finds hope in the midst of this tense landscape. And here's that conversation again. Hi, Jerica. It's great to be chatting with you again. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I wanted to talk to you today about the ongoing political attacks on gender affirming care. There have been hundreds of anti-trans bills introduced this year alone, and it's only getting worse. That's extremely discouraging. But you've been vocal about the need to use your influence in the healthcare community um, through things like educating lawmakers, you know, engaging with them, making sure they understand the safety and necessity of gender-affirming care. I'm curious if you can tell me a bit about how that's been going, say, the past couple of months. Has it gotten more difficult, or have you encountered more engagement? Well, you know, at Plume, we always say our vision is to really transform healthcare for every trans life. And we see ourselves doing that in a few different ways. And first and foremost, through direct patient care. And it can be challenging uh, to work, to provide care, you know, in the political environment that we're in. But we always try to remember that the care we provide is truly life-saving. And we know that it is. And so so that's probably one of the biggest ways that we can have an impact. And I'd say any any provider, any medical provider, healthcare organization um, is just providing that affirming care to trans folks. You know, we do take care of a large number of individuals and um, have uh, a, a lot of potential to, to leverage that data and those insights we gain to inform the care, not only of our community, but of all trans people um, and also inform policy changes. And I think when we can show on a large scale that that care is life-saving and what that means in terms of you know, dramatically reducing rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, improving quality of life, um, that I, I do believe is where we can really move the needle on these things. So on the policy side, we've, you know, we probably spent <clears throat> the last 12 months pretty steadily talking to legislators, uh, talking to Congress, the White House, <clears throat> um, and making sure that trans health is on their radar, of course, but also focusing on some specific policies to to ensure access to healthcare for the trans community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Like, did the midterms affect your efforts in this area at all? Like the 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 political landscape that is shaping up. Do you have hope that you will be able to get through to lawmakers in this political climate? And if so, do you think that 
providing data on the value add of gender affirming care for these individuals in this community uh, is the most effective way to do that. I, I do have hope um, that we can reach lawmakers. And, and I know we have the support of a lot of lawmakers. <clears throat> now, of course, that opinion can be divided. I think you know one thing that we certainly have in our favor is an administration uh, that's the most pro-trans LGBTQ plus administration we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And um, really pushing forward a lot of policies that can protect the civil rights of queer and trans communities. With the trans community, it is a, it's a large community and, and growing in visibility every day. We are seeing more folks being more comfortable coming out and, and living openly as their authentic selves, which is amazing, especially in the climate that we see now. I think the more that we can show um, the larger uh, amount of people we have in the studies that we're reporting out on, um, I think it can be really impactful. And at the end of the day, organizations, especially in the healthcare community who are regulating a lot of this, uh, are, are looking at data, right, to support clinical policies, guidelines. <clears throat> um, and um, so I do think that is an important part of it. Um, but I think the personal stories are, are also uh, really impactful. And uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we all want to be healthy and happy, right? Mm-hmm. No matter who we are, what happens when somebody can live as their authentic self? What happens when they have access to healthcare that affirms them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it really is beautiful. And we very privileged. We get to see that every day, right? We take care of thousands upon thousands of trans people and um, have patients message us or, or talk to us and tell mm-hmm. us just how great they're doing, right? Because they were able to get an appointment um, mm-hmm. that they're like literally alive today because they had access to this care. And, and oh, they're, um, you know, they were able to get a job that they really wanted. They were able to go back mm-hmm. to school, maybe finish a degree, um, uh, secure housing in a way they hadn't been able to before. And so, so we see these stories being lived out every day. And, and the more we can get that out, um, I think to other people, who, again, just like want the same thing for themselves. I think that's where that, that connection point can start to take place. Yeah, absolutely. Like spotlighting the the positives and the wins. So I wanted to take a step back and um, maybe consider all the different entities that are involved in either facilitating or controlling this access to, the, to this care. Um, so there are medical schools, right? There are providers in practice, and then there are the overarching laws and policies that we were just talking about. Maybe we can start with medical and nursing schools. Like, what is the sort of training? Maybe you can speak to your own experience that physicians receive or don't receive uh, on providing gender affirming care. Yeah, it's a great question, Anastasia. And I love that framework of looking at the educational framework. Um, you know what the provider landscape looks like, and of course the the policy and legislative landscape. And they're all critical. They're all you know equally important. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the educational uh, arena is is so important because, of course, that's where it all starts. And um, that's the foundation that we're putting out there for all of our healthcare providers. And historically, there has not been a lot of education uh, when it comes to even basic cultural competency <clears throat> for the trans community, uh, you know, for many marginalized communities, for that matter. Um, and even less when it comes to the clinical competency and, and things like being able to prescribe gender affirming hormone therapy. Uh, or training surgeons on gender-affirming surgery, which of course are just two components of gender-affirming care, which is really includes any type of health care, um, mm-hmm. provided that's informed by the lived experience of trans people. Right? There's a the study that came out in 2011, which said on average in medical schools, there's about five hours of education dedicated to LGBTQ plus health care. Uh, now within that, uh, most schools actually had nothing uh, dedicated to trans health. Um, 
Now, that's changed a little bit over time, but it, it's still overwhelmingly um, a, a very small minority and oftentimes an optional, uh, we'll say like elective or course. So not standardized by any means yet across medical schools, nursing schools, nurse practitioner training, PA training, pharmacy schools, behavioral health, um, right? There's so many components. Right. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I do think that is um, ultimately how we start to address this problem. Now, the issue with that is we're looking at, in, in many cases, like a seven-year lead time to, you know, even get that workforce out into the public. So it takes a while. Um, and that's best case scenario where you wave a magic wand and everybody gets that education, right? And so, yeah. um, and I certainly have a lot of thoughts on how I think the digital health environment can really help that, right? And I think places like Plume, where we're providing teaching every day to clinical teams on how to do this care. Uh, and do it really well. So I think it can be this incredibly uh, creative and productive outlet for education um, of the um, of the entire healthcare community. But that that is a big piece of it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that a lack of representation, you know, of not having enough trans or non-binary individuals teaching at these schools, affects you know the level of um, prioritization that this takes? We all know that representation is important in anything, right? And so I think absolutely increasing the representation of our provider workforce um, of trans and non-binary individuals, and of course, with many layers of intersectionality beyond that, um, is important to making sure that those um, priorities are actually priorities for the schools, right? And, and for the clinics who are doing this care. Um, I think we're, we're kind of a walking, living, breathing example of that, you know, we're a company that's transfounded um, many, most of our company, in fact, over two thirds of our company is trans or gender diverse in some way. Um, and of mm-hmm. course, all of our patients are gender diverse as well. So, um, and that's purposeful because we, we want to make sure that we're representing that lived experience as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So say a school is or is not providing future providers of this care with, with this knowledge say you are past your residency, you're about to start work. Are there any resources that you recommend providers can engage in to, to help build this uh, clinical and cultural training? Yeah, there are quite a few resources out there. Uh, most of these are free. Um, some of them you can pay for as well. But uh, for example, with gender affirming care specifically, there's multiple guidelines that exist and, and guidelines that have existed for gender affirming care for now almost 50 years and um, but one example is WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, um, and so that's something that uh, can be a, a good foundation. It, it's a it's a set of guidelines that's you know uh, evolved a lot over time. It historically, has been uh, actually a little bit of gatekeeping and the the some of the requirements, so to speak, that were out there to be able to access care. Fortunately, a lot of those have gone away and it's a bit more objective and just looking at, you know, what data do we have? How can we help and support trans folks? Um, UCSF has a Center of Excellence for Transgender Care, a wonderful resource. They have a set of what they call their primary care, um, gender affirming care guidelines and um, very practical and and taken from some of the other guidelines that are out there and really, um, I think, a good balance of of seeing what's uh, the actual patients and providers experience. And they have some other modules where you can just learn more generally about LGBTQ plus competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fenway Health and Fenway Institute is another great one. They're a community health center based out of Boston. 
and they have a research institute associated with them. Um, and, and they've been one of the leaders um, in the LGBTQ health space for many years. And so they have a lot of uh, free modules um, and all these places have conferences that you can go to as well and, and get a, um, a ton of information. Um, and, and those occur typically on an annual or biannual basis. And one other I'll throw out there um, is a company called Violet, um, who's fantastic. And they're actually developing a lot of cultural competency training modules. That's right. And, and even, in, uh, yeah, and even in indexing and scoring um, for, uh, for cultural and clinical competency. And so, um, so there's, yeah, there's some really cool uh, programs out there. Oh, in fact, I was just hearing about uh, Mount Sinai has a, an LGBTQ plus fellowship for physicians now, which mm. I think is one of the, the first and not the first um, specific fellowship for that. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for those resources. And it's, it's wild to think that this is like, that, like you said, Mount Sinai's offering is one of the first uh, in this area. That's, um, you know, it's great to see Mm-hmm. that more providers broadly are paying attention to this and not providers like Plume that are, you know, specifically focused on this population. And that's something actually that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, do you think that in an ideal world, there would be no need for LGBTQ specific providers? Like it would just be a part of all primary care or, you know, any provider that you could see would be able to serve this community in a culturally appropriate way? Or do you see a future where, there will still be LGBTQ specific providers um, that will naturally just be more attuned to that community and be better trained. It's a great question. I I think in an ideal world, certainly everybody should have some element of that training, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be built into our training programs across the board in healthcare, and and that will no doubt uh, lead to uh, saving lives quite, quite frankly, um, you know, cause just even having that affirming environment, we know goes a long way, whether you know how to prescribe hormones or, or do any other element of the actual clinical care, um, just having that affirming environment, understanding where folks are coming from is, is step one. And I think we all can do that hands mm-hmm. down. Um, but also having uh, care centers where this care is done a lot and is very routine and we've seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of examples um, and, and can help inform, you know, guidelines for care and, and certainly be consultants for other people um, is also really important, too. Right. So I think they um, you can't have one without the other. So, yeah, I think it's a, a two pronged approach. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think there will always be a need for some sort of specialty care. Um, but like you said, it's. Um, you know, it would be critical to expanding access to this care if if more providers generally were uh, knowledgeable about this. And I wanted to come back to something that you told me the last time that we spoke that stuck with me. Um, you had said that it's always great to have champions, but if the system at large is not supportive, it starts to undermine what one or two people can do. Can you talk about that whole system approach and why you think it's so critical to fostering this um, gender affirming environment? Absolutely. The healthcare system is, is quite complex, I think, as we're all very well aware. And we're dealing with everything from multiple ways of paying for healthcare, of healthcare providers getting reimbursed for care. Um, there's many components operationally between labs and pharmacies um, who, and many different companies within that, right? You know, we started Plume, we kind of stepped outside the system a bit to be able to do that. 
Um, but like to really, in our, in our minds anyways, to, to radically transform access, it means that you got to figure out how to connect to those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, for better or for worse, there's a lot of people who rely on health insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from their employers or wherever it might be, a government program or marketplace. And um, they're, they're relying on using that to pay for their health care. <clears throat> so for example, I mean, one thing that we're, we're doing now and, and getting set up for the next year um, and already starting to, to, to put into action is um, so that patients can use their health insurance uh, for plume, right? Mm-hmm. For gender-affirming care. And uh, that's just one example. The more that we can align folks, bring people along on this mission and just, you know, understanding the trans experience, uh, I think we're, we're all going to be um, better off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. I guess last question for today is just what keeps you going, you know? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, you know, probably gets back to some of the messages I mentioned that come from our patients, right? I just unsolicited organic messages coming in saying how grateful they are for this care, you know, that they're uh that they're alive today because of this care and that they're they're actually better than they ever have been. Um because they've had access to this care. And that's what keeps me going. And I think for us, we just see so much potential, right? In terms of expanding that scale, mm-hmm. um, expanding uh, that networking with <clears throat> the healthcare system, being able to make this more affordable, uh, easier to access. So that's extremely exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah, it should be. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here to talk about it. And thank you for your work. Uh, you know, it's exciting to hear that you will have some expanded payer partnerships. We'll look forward to to hearing more about that soon, but thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Anastasia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, staff writer Dave Moyo speaks with John Hopkins, health policy and economics researcher, G. Bai, on her work exploring healthcare prices. They also discuss whether the requirements are enough to move the needle on rising healthcare prices. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.